Let's ask for God's blessing upon His Word as we turn to read it together. Great Lord of the harvest, we thank You that You have answered Your people's prayers again in raising up laborers to send into the harvest. We thank You for all the labor that Nick has been doing over recent years and the way You have tasted him and proved him and prepared him now for this next step into formal ordination to gospel ministry. We pray as he prays every time he opens your word, Lord, that you would give us light, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts as we open your word. And therefore, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be present, to bring to us the truth, not just to our heads, but to our hearts and to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read together in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Second Corinthians. We're going to read in chapter 5. The Pew Bible is page 966. Second Corinthians, chapter 5. We'll read from verse 11. Therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart." For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised." From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. There are many conflicts going on in the world right now, of course, Russia and Ukraine. There's great conflict there. 
China and Taiwan, always conflict brewing there. North and South Sudan, North and South Korea. And with all these conflicts, there come great costs. We see that in the pictures that come from the battlefields of Ukraine. We see the tremendous, awful destruction that is wrought by conflict. Conflict always then has great cost. When I was growing up, the, the main conflict was what's known as the Cold War between America and Russia and the nuclear arms race. And there was a great peace movement. Millions of people all around the world in different countries got together to try and prevent the horror of nuclear war, of America, Russia, firing nuclear weapons into uh, each other's territory because of the tremendous cost, the awful cost that would be involved in such a conflict. I remember seeing growing up just hundreds of thousands of people sometimes at protests and demonstrations because they were so anxious about preventing or solving this conflict. But although that has faded, other conflicts have taken its place. The present ones will fade and others will take their place. Yet through it all, there is one conflict, the greatest conflict that continues, and there are very few peace campaigners. One conflict that has the greatest cost of all conflicts, that is causing greater destruction than any other conflict. And, and yet, there seems to be a real shortage of people who are concerned about it, who want to prevent it or solve it or bring about reconciliation. What is that conflict? What is the greatest conflict in the world, and in fact, in all world history? And what's our role in solving it? That's the question I want to ask tonight. What's the greatest conflict in world history? And what's our role in solving it? When we read this passage, it's clear that Paul was in a conflict. He was attacked by false apostles who came into the church at Corinth to destroy his work. And they were setting the people of the Corinthian church against him. And so he is deeply concerned about this conflict. But behind it all, behind the conflict that was brewing in this church, was the greatest conflict. The conflict between sinners and a holy God. And Paul, for all his anxiety to be reconciled to the Corinthian Christians, and even with the Corinthian enemies, had a far greater concern, which was that all would be reconciled to God. So, Paul helps us answer the question here, what is the greatest conflict in world history, and what's our role in solving it? We want to see, first of all here, how can we make peace with God? It's a question we often ask, isn't it? Are you, have you made your peace with God? And, and what Paul tells us here is 
It's God that makes peace for us. God makes peace for us. We see that here in verses 18 and 19. He's been talking about transformation. And he says, all this, all this hope of becoming a new creature, a new creation, all this hope of renewal, all this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul's teaching us two things here. He's teaching us that God is at war with us because we are at war with God. And speaking we here, speaking of we as sinners, as those born into the world, we are born into this world as sinners, as those who are at war with God, and therefore God is at war with us. And Paul's concern is to bring about reconciliation here. In fact, five times in these few verses at the end of chapter 5, we hear this word reconcile, reconciliation, reconciling. He's telling us this is, this is the most important thing. Five times, reconciliation, 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 because he knows there are two parties here who are at war, two parties who are hostile to one another. Now, the, the hostility in the two parties is different. The hostility of sinners against God is unjust and unjustified. It's not warranted. The hostility of God towards sinners is both just and justified. God would cease to be holy if he ceased to oppose the sinfulness of sin in his creature. And so we have two parties. On one side, it's a sinless hostility and enmity, God's side. And on our side, it's a sinful hostility and enmity and opposition. And the result of this conflict between God and the apex of his creation, men and women, boys and girls all over the world, the, the result of this is great cost. We, we see it all around us. The destruction, the devastation, the division, the distrust, the damage, the death. The media is full, as you as a community know only too well, of devastating impact of this conflict. God is at war with us because we are at war with God. But God makes peace. God makes peace for us, then with us. He makes peace for us. As we see here in verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. 
And it's further explained in verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And what's really striking about this is that here is God, the most offended of these two parties, who is facing completely unjust and unjustified opposition and hatred. And yet this offended party, he takes the initiative. He steps forward. He makes a move to bring about this reconciliation, this coming together, this peace between those who were once at war. It's all, as, as he says, opening up this passage, all this is from God. The transformation to a new creature and the reconciliation of sinners to himself. This is from God. How does he do it? Does he just say, well, okay, we've, we've had a long war here. You have really offended me. You have, you have hated me. You have opposed me. You've disobeyed me. You've You've blasphemed me. You've broken all my laws. You've turned against my ways. Let's just forget about it. Let's just, let's just dismiss it. Let's minimize it. Let's let bygones be bygones. Let's, let's forget the past and just look forwards. Does he do that? No, he doesn't, and he cannot. Instead, what we're told here, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So here, here are these people with all these sins against God, and God says, I'm not going to count them against you. I'm not going to charge you with them because I have counted them against Christ. I have put them on Christ's charge sheet. And I have punished justly my son in your place instead of you. Counted all that should have been counted against you against him. That's what God was doing in Christ with his sacrifice. And so he deals with this, with this objective problem of our hostility, our sinful hostility against him. And he deals with our subjective hostility within our hearts by sending his spirit and bringing the cross of Christ into our experience, softening our hearts, taking away that enmity, instead bringing a friendship to us. It really means that God counted Jesus as the greatest sinner that ever lived. He dealt with him as the greatest sinner that ever lived. You think of some of the greatest sinners in world history that died without repentance and faith, and they are now being punished in hell forever. However long that goes on, however deep that punishment is, it's nothing compared to how Christ was treated on the cross as God poured out his perfect justice until it was exhausted, until he could say, no more enmity. All my justice has been fully satisfied. I am now reconciled and reconcilable. 
What a sacrifice. And it results not in division and damage and destruction. Instead, it results in peace. God makes peace for us on the cross and then with us by the gospel. So that it's not that we make peace with God. God makes peace for us. It's not make peace with God, but receive peace from God. The peace He's already made that you cannot make, but that He can and who has. Therefore, if we are at war with God and God's at war with us, but He's made peace for us and then with us by faith, in Christ, it results in not a war zone, but a peace zone. That's what the cross is. It's a peace zone. It's the place, the only place where God makes peace. And he brings us there to give us his peace. To know God is no longer angry with me. God no longer opposes me. I'm no longer an enemy of God. I'm no longer opposed to God. God makes peace for us. So I want to ask you tonight, are you still at war with God? Are, are you still hostile to Him and His Word and His ways, His law, His gospel? Are you still pushing Him and the gospel away? You're still an enemy of God. Who's going to win that conflict? Do you, do you have any possible strategy for winning that? What God would say to you tonight is, run up the white flag of surrender and take my peace. Receive my peace. Be no longer an enemy. We make war. God makes peace. So if God makes peace for us, what follows from that? Well, Paul tells us here, he tells us we have something to do. And it's this, God urges peace through us. He makes peace for us, and then he urges peace through us. Look back at these verses. He says, He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, having entrusted to us the message of reconciliation, we are ambassadors for Christ. Christ making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here is what happens. When God makes peace for us and with us, he then says, I want to keep making peace through you. And I'm calling you to be a peace campaigner. To, to make the resolution of this enmity, this conflict, this hostility, the greatest priority of your life. 
that once you as a Christian are reconciled, you become a reconciler. Once you receive the peace, the peace then must flow through you, through your witness, through the ministry of reconciliation. This is, this is Paul calling the Corinthians to become ambassadors, but he's not assuming, he's not assuming that everyone there in Corinth has made or received that peace from God. No, that's where he begins. Get the peace, receive the peace, feel the peace, believe the peace, then spread the peace. Communicate the peace. Bring that peace to others. And he tells us how to do it. It's, it's in the model of being an ambassador, somebody who is representing the great peacemaker, Christ. We're to come. And as he puts it here, make appeal on behalf of Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. It's astonishing, isn't it? That, that we should be peacemakers, that we should be ambassadors for the King of kings and Lord of lords. That God doesn't come and do this directly, but through his servants and through his people. As he puts them in different places, he's saying, be my ambassador, be my spokesperson, be my pleader, and bring this message to others, and, and plead with them as though it's me there, myself. What would that look like? If, if we are to to bring this peace. It involves facts, for sure. Paul's message here is very factual, very much focused on historical realities. We see even in verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But it's not just about facts. It's also about feeling. It's, it's not just the truth. It's the temperature of the truth. Because what's been communicated here is that when we come with the gospel, we come with authority, not apology. An ambassador has authority. He doesn't come saying, well, I'm really sorry. I know you probably don't want to hear this. And I probably, I'm the one to be telling you. And no, 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 no. An ambassador has authority and therefore comes with confidence, not in himself, but in the one who sent him. And, and he comes with passion. He doesn't come cold and calculating and calm. No, the, the stakes are too high. The, the conflict is too serious. The, the, the consequences are too massive. That's why even earlier in this chapter, Paul says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. For the love of Christ controls us. And then here he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. God, if, if Jesus was here tonight, 
personally, standing here, how would he make this appeal? How would he speak to you? He wouldn't just stand here passionless, with no emotion, speaking as if he's giving a, a lecture on science or history or geography, would he? You would detect feeling. You would feel his love. You would know his concern for you. You would sense his anguish, his anxiety, his sincere longing for your good, as he would explain that great exchange of how all that was counted against us was transferred to him, and all that was his was transferred to us. He would, he would be, I think he would be weeping for us, that we would embrace it and receive it and, and gladly rejoice in it. It would be passionate. It would be faithful. He wouldn't tone it down. He wouldn't smooth off the rough edges. He would be faithful. He would be full time at it. It wouldn't be thoughtless and careless. Now and again, he does this. No, this is all that he is about. An ambassador. That's what we are called to be for him. Standing in Christ's place. Telling the truth that he would tell and telling it in the way he would tell it. What a challenge that is. Challenge for me, for every pastor, for Nick, as he begins this more formal chapter of his ministry. It's a challenge for us all as we plead with our children, with our siblings, with our parents, with our neighbors, with our colleagues. Let, let's, let's bring the truth, but let's also bring the temperature, the emotional temperature that is appropriate for this truth. I was reading about Charles Simeon, an Anglican, an English pastor of many years ago, and it was said of him this, after having urged all his hearers to accept the proffered mercy, he reminded them that there were those present to whom he had preached Christ for more than 30 years, but they continued indifferent to the Savior's love. And pursuing this train of exposition for some time, he at length became quite overpowered by his feeling, and he sank down into the pulpit and burst into a flood of tears. So, are you an ambassador for Christ? You've been reconciled to God through Christ. You are an ambassador for Christ. Are you pleading for Christ, with those you love. Isn't this what we need as pastors, elders, deacons, members, Christians in our places of where we live, where we work, wherever we go? Make me an ambassador. Make me a pleader. Make me a persuader. Make me a reasoner. Make me someone that brings the power of the gospel in the power of the gospel. So we started with a question, didn't we? What is the greatest conflict? And what is our role in solving it? And the answer, I hope, as you can see from this, is embrace God's peace. Embrace it by embracing Christ. And then exhort to peace. Peace. 
so that many others can come to enjoy this peace themselves. Let's embrace and let's exhort and let's plead for souls constrained by his love, by his commission, his example. See, we trust this conflict, if not come to an end, diminished. And instead of destruction, we begin to see construction and new creations. Amen. Let's pray. God of holy hostility, thank you for making peace for us through Christ. Help us to embrace it with gratitude and exhort to it with passion. In Jesus' name, amen.